0: Thank you for uh, pulling yourselves away from the debate. Uh, It's been over for a little while now, but obviously uh, people are still picking through the carnage. Um, My name's Martin Hook. I'm the Dean of the School of Media and Communication at RMIT. And even though we're not quite there, um, RMIT does acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the traditional owners of the land on which the university stands, and RMIT respectfully recognises elders both past and present. What we're here for this evening is to talk about journalism. Um, The journalism program within the School of Media and Communication at RMIT um, is very prominent, Uh, it's very respected. Uh, We have relatively famous alumni, such as Robert Thompson, um, Chief Executive of News Corp. Um, Nick McKenzie from Fairfax Media, uh, who some of you may know of, uh, the ABC multi-award winning investigative journalist and a recent Alumni of the Year at RMIT. I think the reality is is that we find our journalism students working everywhere. They're not just isolated into newspapers or sitting in regional newsrooms. Uh, they are global in the manner in which they uh, go out into the world market. Increasingly, they are fle- freelance. They are self-starting. They are doing the things that we would expect them to be doing. They're involved in startups. They're involved in making their own journalism channels and contributing into commentary, exploring fact, interrogating what it is that they see, and attempting to reveal what they see as being injustice in the world. Some of them. Um, It's an exciting time for journalism at RMIT. We have our new media precinct coming online. Um, Some of you who have been onto the campus, yes, it does resemble a building site, and some of our existing students, I do apologise, it's almost over. Um, Underneath all of the scaffold, uh, there is, in fact, an $80 million collection of studios, both TV and radio, and a newsroom emerging um, underground. And something that we see very much as a response into what we see as being the challenges and opportunities that are emerging from the disruption in journalism and an understanding of the power of not only the written word now but the ability for journalists to create rich media that has significant impact and is able to be distributed immediately. In this context, we've uh, had a couple of good years at RMIT, and this is the bit where I get to boast like a proud parent. Um, At the Melbourne Press Club Quill Awards, uh, in 2015, one of our grad DIP students, Bridget Davis, won the Melbourne Press Club's Quill Award for Young Journalism Student of the Year. And three of the four students who were shortlisted for the Quill Awards were from RMIT. Uh, Bridget's now a cadet at the Herald Sun, and another grad dip alumnus, Nick Payne, won Best Suburban Reporting in Writing, uh, and Nick is now a reporter at News Limited. Uh, also, the Walkley Awards, we have done very well in recent years, particularly um, this year, where we won the Student of the Year from our undergraduate journalism student, Johnny Blackery. Uh, Bridget was also a finalist for that award, And although Jani is still a student, he's freelancing for the ABC, Al Jazeera, uh, Reuters, and the BBC World Service. Also students, Monica Ireland and Alajahana Victoria were finalists in the Jacobi Walkley Scholarship. Monica also won a scholarship from the Australian Japan Foundation to intern at the Japan Times. And two more journalism students, Shannon Schubert and Rochelle Kirkham, have been awarded scholarships for 2017. So we were out there and we were doing lots of things in lots of places. And the school likes to support these students in their endeavors and bring this criticality also into the Aussie Awards, um, where further RMIT students excelled. We had James Hall win the best video story, and Jarni Blackery again won the best audio story for over two minutes. Rachel Dexter was highly commended in the best text-based story over 750 words, and Amelia Mills won the Mindframe Award. And our City Journal Online, Antonio, won uh, best publication. Uh, And I think that the manner in which our students are driven, both through Murray Curtis's efforts in the graduate diploma and the whole journalism team, is a massive reinforcement to a group of staff who don't necessarily agree on everything, uh, but they do agree that journalism is vital and vitally important to the manner in which our culture and our community emerges. And this evening, we are joined by a very illustrious panel uh, to debate what is probably a critical point in time Uh, the notion of fact or fiction. And as we saw this afternoon, um, fact and fiction blurred perhaps into into theatre, and beginning to understand whether people actually care about the delineation between fact from the theatre of what is currently occurring, almost globally in politics. Our panel this evening will be uh, moderated by Helen Trinker, the managing editor from The Australian, Uh, Helen is a respected author and journalist. Before being appointed as the Australian's managing editor in 2011, she had a variety of senior positions at the Australian, the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald and ABC Radio. And for a brief time in the late 1980s, she was the public relations officer for the Australian Vice-Chancellor's Committee, which is interesting around here. Misha Kettle, uh, Managing Editor from The Conversation. Misha began his career as co-editor of Melbourne University's student newspaper, Farago, before being appointed as the founding editor of The Big Issue. He won awards for his reporting and feature writing at The Age, and as a former editor of online news sites Crikey and The Drum, and has held senior positions at the ABC 730 Report and, of course, Media Watch. Uh, Jane Wardell, uh, Bureau Chief Australia and New Zealand for Reuters News. Uh, Before joining Reuters in 2012, Jane spent almost 20 years as a business and political reporter and editor through Asia and Europe. She has worked for the Associated Press, the Financial Times, the Australian Associated Press and the Indonesian Observer. And joining us very much uh, at the last minute, And the last drop, uh, we have Cameron Stewart, associate editor at The Australian. Uh, Cameron is an award-winning investigative journalist and associate editor of The Australian. In 2009, he won the Melbourne Press Club's Graham Perkin Award for the Australian Journalist of the Year, and he has also won five Melbourne Press Club Quill Awards for excellence in journalism. So... Not the least, we have an incredibly esteemed, award-winning panel to match with our student body. And I would like to hand over to Helen as moderator for this evening's session.
1: Um, Welcome, everybody. It's great to be here uh, tonight for this discussion. I'm looking forward to it a great deal, even though I've got to say it's quite a confronting and challenging idea, this notion of... Whether or not we can still work around a, in a template for journalism that 's based around the facts, you know it really is a provocative question that we ask up front today about whether or not anybody cares fact or fiction does anybody care? I guess everybody in this room knows the answer to that at the beginning of the evening, which is that we do care and we do care deeply and it 's the questions really we have to answer are slightly more nuanced and complex than than that obvious one. Um, I think it's really about how how do we best report on the facts when the notion of facts is coming under such challenge from a variety of uh, technical, digital sort of um, sources and also from society itself in so many ways. I think the other question we've got to ask is, are enough people uh, listening to us, those of us who are interested in the facts, is our audience for this actually big enough? Um, and finally, I suppose the topic du jour, really, t- uh, is that given the rise and uh, perhaps t- after tonight, after today the demise of Trump, um, is a traditional template of journalism, which is really basically the old he said, she said model, is that up for review? I mean, do we need a different approach to trying to counter the sorts of assertions that someone like a Trump can make? So there's never really been a better time to be alive if you're interested in information in this uh, culture. Um, but that uh, the problem with that is that where it leaves our profession, uh, which, re- which actually relies on reporting on only some of that information. So we're now undeniably a very small part, I suppose, in the media of the information flow that's available to, all, to, to the world um, and what's our role in that. Um, I made a decision on the, when I was preparing for this that I wouldn't talk about the glory days of journalism back in the back in the day about 40 years ago when I started when it was so clear there were, the facts ruled the rules around uh, journalism were very clear the rules around um, the way the society operated were sort of clearer and we we knew exactly how to counter people like Donald Trump that is we ignored them uh, we were the gatekeepers and it was a very much uh, a very different sort of world that we operated in. Um, uh, and I think we were very confident back then, too, about the framework as journalists. We, we knew we, – we didn't question the framework that we operated within. Uh, we, and our readers and, or our viewers actually didn't question it either. They'd signed up for the project as well. They believed us. They trusted us. They believed in the framework. They believed in the template. And uh, we wielded quite a degree of power, I think, as journalists and as um, the gatekeeper. Anyway, I was going to say I wasn't going to talk about that. I suppose that what I want to say is I don't want to be nostalgic about that period because I think that period has gone. And um, we really need to work with what we've got in our society if we want to... Um, in a sense, almost reimagine the profession and i don't by that I don't mean that we've got to reimagine it out of existence, but we do have to think hard about how we're going to operate in a world where the information flow is you know all those obvious things it's twenty four seven and it's coming at us from a whole group of people who are now not only consumers of news but are the producers of information at least um, and I think if we believe in our own stories and in what we're doing, we've got to really think. Um, And if if we really do believe that we've got a role beyond entertainment, um, which I do, uh, we need to understand that um, we need to uh, think hard about why we're at this point where we can actually have a seminar that says fact or fiction and does anybody care? Um, I think that um, a couple of other points I'd like to make is that it's not just about the digital technology that's changed everything. Fragmentation of the media is one element of what's happened. The other thing that's happened is, I suppose, the dozens of things that have happened in the last 40 years in Western society that are around authority, around trust, around power, around ceding power to the old institutions, and we're seeing that with um, in high colour, I suppose, in the US at the moment, where it seems apparent that a whole group of Americans are saying we actually don't operate in those old institutions. We're not accepting those old rules anymore. Um, so Donald Trump has certainly challenged the way we do business and I think it's very hard for the media to be an effective force against lies um, when those lies, in essence, are being told virtually on purpose to confuse or, or at least at the very least the people telling lies don't really care if they've found out. They just keep on r- repeating the lies And it's a surreal kind of world um, that we're sort of living in. There's always been those sort of conspiracy theories, I suppose. You know, you only have to think about 9-11, the conspiracy theories about that, and about even the man on the moon, uh, the men on the moon. But um, the credibility of conspiracy theories is certainly increased when uh, wild assertions come out of someone who's um, a presidential candidate and, of course, are being repeated uh, and and are... well, the reality is, when they when they're uh, the assertions are made by a presidential candidate, it's impossible for media not to report on them. So, um, I, I guess just to um, summarise, there are a couple of I think I've made most of my points about what, where we'll sort of go in the debate. But I think probably the crucial one that I'm very interested in talking about today is if you've got a different approach to the he said she said template, what would that be? How would that pan out? What would that look like? Uh, Because we're not talking here about dropping the news and uh, replacing it with opinion or comment. We're talking about how you do the news, how you do that fact... uh, um, ..how you report on events and policies and assertions in a way that actually um, allows a a, a much more um, rigorous debate, I suppose, than the one that we're seeing in various areas of uh, politics at the moment. So I think we're just... We're going to hear from the three... um, ..my three... Uh, co-panelists and then we'll, um, I'll, we'll have some questions then we'll have some questions from the floor as well. So Jane would you like to make a few comments on this question really I suppose of you know where, where are we at where are the issues?
2: Yes thanks Helen um <clears throat> You mentioned obviously the debate. It's It's been something we've all been watching and certainly within Reuters it's, it's been one of our biggest challenges probably in, in reporting has been Trump's ascendancy to the presidential race. Um, I just thought I'd wind back the clock again uh, just to start uh, with an explanation that uh, Reuters operates by a golden set of principles. Uh, they're called the trust principles. Uh, there are two that are sort of really relevant there are four of these principles and there are two that are relevant to this debate Uh, and these have have provided this overarching guidance for our reporting in terms of accuracy uh, unbiased uh, and transparent coverage and I just wanted to quickly read those out they're quite short uh, but they're very relevant so one is that the integrity independence and freedom from bias of Reuters shall at all times be fully preserved Uh, The other is that Reuters shall supply unbiased and reliable news services to newspapers, news agencies, broadcasters and other media subscribers and also to businesses, governments, institutions and other individuals. So the challenge for us is that these trust principles were actually created in 1941. They haven't changed a great deal since then. At the time they were designed to impose standards on reporters in the middle of the propaganda of World War II Uh, Obviously, there were a lot fewer outlets then. Uh, So the question is, how do these principles serve us 75 years down the track in this vastly changed media environment? You could obviously argue that there's still propaganda, but there is now uh, an explosion of other outlets. In contrast to that, a report this year by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at um, at Oxford University... Uh, actually looked instead at the key developments that they expected to happen in media this year and they looked very closely at the digital space. So they looked into things like Facebook, Google, Apple, the battle between those to be news providers intensifying, messaging apps as the next phase of the social revolution and the explosion of 360-degree video. So all these are creating more and more noise and the question for us is, what role do we as a traditional wire service and our other colleagues in, in the media play in this landscape. And I guess the, the sort of overarching issue, I think, for us and others is, you know, is there advantage for us in this sea of noise to be this beacon truth-teller? And we would strongly argue the case that that, that is so. But also, do we need to innovate and enter this digital space ourselves? And the question to that is also, yes, absolutely, we do. So how do we do that? How do we weigh up those two things? And that's a very tricky question that is discussed at very senior levels within the organisation and it's discussed day to day as we report the news at the grassroots level in the newsroom. Um, So I think there's sort of thoughts that I will leave to start with and uh, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about them as we go on.
3: Okay, well, thank you. Um, It's a tricky question, and I certainly don't have any answers. Um, But what I'd like to do is just start by um, trying to give you a bit of a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about a post truth political discourse. Um, Just a few examples Um, Donald Trump believes that climate change is a hoax and vaccines cause autism. Paul N. Hansen says we're going to be swamped by Muslims who are currently 2.2% of the population. Her One Nation colleague, Malcolm Roberts, seriously thinks that a tight-knit cabal of major banking families in the world is advancing corrupted climate science with the aim of global domination. Michael Gove, the UK politician, said before the Brexit that people have had enough of experts. And that's a quote I'm going to come back to because I think it's significant. Um, Joe Hockey said not so long ago, fact-checkers are entitled to their opinion. And interestingly, Rush Limbaugh said this in protecting Donald Trump recently, defending Donald Trump, there is no fact checking. The fact that the New York Times and the Washington Post and USA Today and all those other papers and networks now have fact checkers is for one reason. It allows them to fool you into thinking that they have an objective nonpartisan staff or person analysing everything the candidates are saying and telling you what they're saying is true or what they're saying is false. When in fact... The fact-checkers are no different than the biased left-wing reporters and columnists at these papers and on networks. But the fact-check, the idea that it is a fact-check story, is designed to say to you that it is objective and analytically fair. And all it is is a vehicle for them to do opinion journalism under the guise of fairness. So that's how Rush Limbaugh sees fact-checking. So you're getting a bit of a sense from all of these comments, uh, really about two things. One is a deep suspicion of experts, and I think, Helen, you made the point about a lack of trust in authority. Um, And the second thing is about contested truth, like what is a fact and what isn't a fact. Um, A lot of people, um, particularly in my world, The Conversation is is a media outlet that works with academics, feel that the answer is simple. Just give people the evidence, give them the facts, convince them with the evidence. Um, there's a philosopher that writes for us called Patrick Stokes, and he thinks that that's hopelessly naive and a big mistake. The reason is, I mean, he quotes um, the American astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who recently tweeted that all we need is a virtual country called Rationalia with a constitution that demands every policy be based on the weight of evidence. Patrick Stokes says that that is a flawed and naive idea, and the reason is this. He invokes a philosopher called Henry Frankfurt, who argues that post-truth politics is not fundamentally about lies, but bullshit. The liar knows the the truth and cares enough about it to conceal it. The bullshitter, by contrast, doesn't care and may not know if what they say is true. They just care that you believe it. I think it's a really interesting distinction to think about. If you actually are lying, it implies a sort of deliberate concealment of a truth you recognise. If you're a bullshitter, you're engaged in the business of telling stories um, sort of in a way that is almost independent or respective of the truth. And I would argue that somebody like Donald Trump is a classic example of a bullshitter. Um, now, the philosopher Henry, Henry Frankfurt, who wrote a whole book on bullshit, said Bullshitters seek to convey a certain impression of themselves without being concerned about whether anything at all is true. They quietly change the rules governing their end of the conversation so that claims about truth and falsity are irrelevant. Think of Rush Limbaugh. Um, Frankfurt concludes that although bullshit can make many innocent take many innocent forms, excessive indulgence in it can eventually undermine the practitioner's capacity to tell the truth in a way that lying does not. So that's one example of perhaps the way in which we get um, a form of information in a, in a post-truth or post-fact discourse. Another way to look at it is um, a critical thinker from a Sydney university called Peter Ellington, who, Peter Ellington who wrote an article for us recently. Um, he says that what we most value in politicians is not that they tell us the truth, but that their worldview resonates with our own. That's because we're storytelling animals. We actually like to uh, identify with particular stories or particular types of narrative narratives. He quotes a psychologist called Daniel Kahneman who said... The confidence that people have in their beliefs is not a measure of the quality of the evidence, but of the coherence of the story that the mind has managed to construct. I think it's a really interesting point. Because we're human beings and we're convinced by stories and we listen and we think in stories, um, we're much more convinced by a story which is coherent Irrespective of whether the factual basis underlying it is accurate or not, we don't think like scientists, we're not testing hypotheses. Our way, the way that we process narratives is fundamentally different. And anybody who wants to argue that the way to deal with a post-truth political discourse is just presenting the facts, I think Patrick Stokes is right, is to say that that's a somewhat naive position. If it was that easy, we would have solved this problem already. Um, But according to Patrick Stokes, there's another thing underlying this, which I think is an even more important problem. He says that hostility to experts has become a corrosive feature of modern political society. But Stokes doesn't see the answer in merely debating crackpot theories with a barrage of facts and evidence. He sees the need for a far more fundamental project to rebuild trust between the public and the experts we rely on to make sense of an increasingly complex world. And that's pretty much where I am. Um, I think that what um, Helen was talking about was partly this idea of Um, A sphere of experts who, you know, journalists were one brand of expert who once fulfilled a role as gatekeepers, policing the public sphere, deciding what came in or out, sorting information so that you knew what to pay attention to, what not to worry about. There was a public sphere that was somewhat unpolluted by bullshitters, for want of a better word. Um, Unfortunately, media models have have broken that down and we've got a new world where bullshitters are actually able to give free vent to their ideas. I think the most successful way of addressing that is to rebuild trust in experts. And by that I mean both journalists as experts, because I think that journalists can fulfil a really important role as being disinterested people who deal with information, who try to inform people. And I think journalism is qualitatively different to um, being a commentator or expressing opinions or being a blogger. I think that there's a specific role for the professional journalist that we need to understand and value, And by the way, I think journalists have done a really bad job of explaining to the public what it is they do and why it's valuable, and I'd like to see more work done on that. And I think the other thing that we can do is rebuild trust with the experts, which is partly what we're trying to do with the conversation. What we're saying is there's a whole bunch of people in universities who actually know what they're talking about, who have real expertise and real knowledge and can actually help you understand the world. And they can do a really valuable job of giving you the factual information, the broader context explaining helping make sense of the world and we think that rebuilding that fundamental trust which underlies a certain level of the discourse means that we can have people who will have some authority and who actually can potentially have some success in dealing with the bullshitters in the world um, and
4: that's all for now thank you, thank you. thanks Helen um, look I just uh, I'll just make a couple of the brief comments I'm a bit uh late coming to this so uh haven't prepared as quite as much. But I'll just tell you my, my gut feel on this stuff. Um I think the reason why we're even having this conversation here tonight is uh because two incredible things have happened which have totally changed the game. And that is um obviously there's a tsunami of technological change which has hit journalism. Uh it's hit the industry. You know, uh I'm an old codger and you know I still get the two papers flying over the front fence with the wrapping on them. But now I could get up. I could go. I could get my news through Twitter, through Facebook, um, on online sites, Guardian, Crikey, whatever. Uh, I could actually almost get almost everything if I wanted from that. Before I turned on the ABC radio, before I turned on television, before I read any of the the major newspapers. Uh, and this, you know, creates a massive challenge because, um, you know, if you're a journalist to, to actually cut through with your stories, and therefore the influence of each of those. Um, platforms, if you like, diminishes the influence of of the next one. And so you have this incredible um, scattergun uh, journalism world that we're we're now in. We've seen a major expansion of opinion and um, a contraction of fact-based reporting, old-fashioned, what we used to call reported pieces. Um, And this has really reduced the gatekeeper role of the traditional media and the ones which are, I guess for want of a better word, were seen as the more serious media in Australia, the ones that were, were doing the main investigative work that were, that were changing, helping to influence government, uh, breaking stories that would change government policy. Um, so that's made it a lot more difficult, uh, a diverse media. However, what's also happened at the same time is that you have this phenomenon in the Western world of people feeling alienated by change, economic, social and technological change in Britain, in America, uh, in Australia to a degree and so you have a much more volatile political situation and so and that's thrown up a Trump, it's thrown up a Brexit, you could argue in Australia it's thrown up a Clive Palmer, Pauline Hanson uh, and so you have this discombobulated political world and you have this um, smashed to smithereens, multi-dimensional journalism world and I think what you're seeing happening here is politicians are taking advantage of this to tell um, porkies, they've always told porkies, but to tell bigger porkies and bolder porkies than ever before in the hope that they can't get caught out in the way that they did. Uh, and I think examples of that here in Australia, well certainly the obvious one as we've been talking about is Trump. You know, Obama wasn't born in America, stuff like that. Uh, he uh, opposed the Iraq war. I mean things that are palpably false and provably false and just keeps repeating it. In Australia, you might argue to an extent Clive Palmer's talk about being a great businessman and how he had no no say in Palmer in his um, company collapsing, even maybe Bill Shorten during the election campaign on, on Medicare. You know, I mean, it was a big, big, long bow for him to argue what he argued, but he did consistently, it did not stop all the way through. So I think it's really interesting and this is what you're seeing and I think that's why we're in this position and asking this question now. And I think um, that it doesn 't make it, uh, it doesn 't make it impossible to cover these things properly it doesn 't make journalism any less important it makes it more important but I think that um, in the end i 'm an optimist I believe that fact based fact based reporting does actually win out in the end because I think ultimately there 's a lot of noise a lot of smoke a lot of a lot of froth which comes with Twitter and a lot of these sort of um, devices but in the end uh, you still see most of the of the investigative stuff that actually changes things coming from the more sober, old-style media. And so I'm still an optimist, but I think the job is a lot harder and it's a really interesting, fascinating and slightly scary challenge. Um,
1: Actually, um, it's interesting, um, Cam, when you're saying that facts um, went out in the end. I was thinking today how... What probably will bring uh, Trump down is in fact not the facts that are being put up against his wild assertions, but the um, airing of a piece of video that without a doubt nails him as a horrible person. So it's got nothing to do with his policies and it's got nothing to do with any of the Lies or wild assertions or wild promises that he's made, and I think that's really interesting, isn't it? I'm not. I'm not suggesting that the facts haven't, and the um, and fact based reporting to counter his assertions hasn't helped. At many levels during the campaign in the last year, uh, to um, to reduce his uh, status or perhaps make some people, you know, think again about whether or not they should vote for him. But it is quite um, chastening, I suppose, to uh, reporters to think that in the end it's the production of the video. Anyway, that's just a comment. Um, I, I might actually just start with you, though, Cam, and say if if you think that it is, what, what's the first thing that we should do, or do we need to do anything differently to the way that we've been operating for, say, in the most the later, you know, the last 50. Or 60 years in journalism had a particular way of operating um, do you, uh, in terms of the content and the treatment of stories. What do you think we should do uh, at a time when it's harder and harder to get the facts across?
4: I think, um, I think in, a, in a way, you, you, you keep the basic recipe, but I mean, you, in the, which is to be, um, you know, you, when, when someone says something, it's a complete porky. Uh one of the – I mean, you can take two ways of looking at it. You can either not report it, but I think that's, as you said, Helen, not valid anymore. You really can't do that because it'll be reported all over the place anyway through other, other media. But um, it's a great challenge because you report what they say and then you go and bust a gut to try and get the facts to, to, um, to catch them out. That's a great incentive for any journalist. And I think that that's – but as you say, the trouble has been, especially in America more than anywhere else, um, that – Trump has been caught out again and again and again. And it really, really struggled to get traction in a way that you would have expected it has done. And it may have been without this video that he would have lost anyway. Um, But I think it's been, you know, it's. And so I think journalists uh, and media organisations have to be quite original in actually trying to catch people's attention on these things. And we've seen some terrific examples in the last couple of years of journalists who've just had a really innovative approach to telling a story which really changes things.
5: Yeah.
1: Um, Misha, I'm just interested in what you think about this. I mean, how do you... You know, to Cam's, um, to follow on from Cam, what do you think should we should be doing about the way we report?
3: Um, well, well, I think the first thing is, going back to the question which you actually raised, which is a question about trust. So one of the issues for journalism is that now it's encountered in an environment where it's competing against bloggers, um, a whole range of other voices. And what we're really trying to say about journalism is that there's something that makes it qualitatively different, that a professional journalist approaches a topic in a disinterested way, they're an information professional, they handle information in a certain way, they're not a player, they're not a protagonist in the same way. And I think that journalists have um, often fallen short of those standards, which makes it very difficult to distinguish quality journalism from everybody else who is, you know, in the game of making up narratives or creating stories. Um, But I think that one of the things that journalism desperately needs to do is make it clear how it is qualitatively different, so that when the New York Times does fact-check something that um, Donald Trump says, someone like Rush Limbaugh can't just say, well, they're just the same, they're just, you know, people from the other side just having a go at us, everybody's just in the ruck of this world where everything's weightless and everything's equal – um, I think we need to make a case about what journalism is and why why we should value it and why we should trust it.
1: And Jane, what do you think? Do you think the the only thing we have are the facts, and we've just got to do the best we can with them? Mm,
2: it's 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 interesting from a newswire perspective. Um, going back, the, how we started with supplying the facts, um, and sometimes we can get tied with the brush that we we play it too straight that we just provide facts and like all news organizations now we, we have to provide added value. Um, I think one, I think there is a great advantage in a way for us in this. I mean, one thing that we hear a lot from clients is that from media clients is that they don't, they often don't pick up on sort of these wild, insubstantiated rumours that go around on Twitter. We've all seen it, a celebrity has apparently died and it rushes around the world until that celebrity pops up and says, yes, rumours of my death are greatly exaggerated, reports of my death. Um, And and for us, there is great value in having such strong fact-checking and sourcing requirements that we will not move a story until we know for sure that that is the case. So we we still do have clients regularly coming to us and saying, we don't run this until Reuters runs it, because we know that when you run it, it's true. Uh, so in the, in the breaking news arena, there, there is great, great value in that for us. Uh, I think where it becomes more difficult is in a sort of semi-analysis, like looking at... The debate today, for example, it's very easy to report what he said. Uh, what's more difficult to report and still do it in an unbiased and uh, transparent way is is the more meaningful context around the facts that he has, yeah. well, or non-facts. that he Yeah. Said.
1: So, I mean, I wonder what the panel thinks of this idea that maybe uh, we've, when you focus on the facts, you're actually missing the wood for the trees. Um, Just a comment, really, from Jay Rosen, who's a U.S. media academic. And one of the things he said in a recent essay about the political system and the way politics is reported, and he's talking, obviously, about the states, but equally valid here... And effectively he says we've invented a sort of shared symmetrical system in which everybody signs up for the same sort of notion um, and the politicians and the media understand what's going on and someone like Trump just sort of throws all that out the, out the door. And what Rosen says in an essence that a balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon, someone like Trump, actually distorts reality. So balance, the reliance on the facts that the absolute, um, you know, um, precision around detail, in fact, uh, might not help you enough. And so I'm just interested, Cam, do you think that sometimes balance in a story actually leaves the reader or the viewer uh, worse off in terms of understanding what's going on?
4: Well, I guess it, to some degree it can, but I mean, you've got opinion writers, you've got um, opinion columnists who can, who can, if they don't agree with what, say, Trump has said, can uh, go and slam him in an opinion piece and then use facts in that opinion piece to do it. So I think you can still do it, but I still think you need that basic um, straight reporting, but also um, good analysis as well rather than the opinion piece. Um, and the power of that, I think, is still... Um, it's 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 quite a broad thing. I mean, for example, let's say the project. Um, uh, what would be, if you're watching the project, which I don't regularly, but occasionally I, I look at it, uh, what would you take out of the project for the last year of the two main pieces? They're probably um, anal- serious analysis pieces, which um, Waleed Ali did on uh, on the milk issue, the milk crisis, and, and on ISIS. Um, and so, you know, I think, and that rated they rated their socks off those things. And so, I think that there's a real, um, still a hunger for that sort of fact-based opinion piece analysis. And so, uh, I haven't got the answers to how you'd really counter unconventionally Trump, um, without stooping down to maybe his level. Um, But uh, there's a couple of thoughts.
1: Yeah. Um, Misha, I was just wondering in this question about fact, what happens when you get a piece on the conversation that isn't uh, right? So, for instance, you know, like your piece is submitted by an academic. Um, He's arguing or she's arguing a case... If, do you question that sometimes and you say, actually, these facts are wrong or do, do you have a system where you put that up and then someone counters that? I mean, how do, you, how do you manage that? Because that's also part of this debate in a way, isn't it? Because they are your experts and this is one of the problems, I suppose, that the public has about experts is they're presented as if the facts you know, are correct. You know, so.
3: Yeah, absolutely and, um, of course, experts can be wrong, as, mm-hmm. as I found out. Um, no, we have, a, we have a really strict policy which is that if an article is published... And then, there's any claim about a factual inaccuracy, um, we identify whether there's a you know whether the inaccuracy is there, and then if there is an inaccuracy, we correct it immediately and transparently. And if the inaccuracy is fundamental to the article, we retract the article. And when we retract an article, we don't just you know sort of mumble on page three oh, you know, we've got something wrong or just look the other way. Um, what we actually do is we. Um, write a separate article explaining that a piece has been retracted, why it's been retracted. We disseminate that article through social media. We contact all of the republishers we work with because we work with a lot of, a lot of other media organisations and we disseminate that information very actively because we feel that um, our whole reason to exist is to try to put good quality, reliable information into the public sphere, which is so contaminated with misinformation. And when we fall short of that standard, we, the first thing we want to do is fix it. Um, to reduce the impact of that mistake that we've made. Um, what we've found is that people respond to that astonishingly well. Um, we often get people writing on our Facebook posts when something's gone wrong, sort of praising the way in which we, we have corrected something. And again, we think that's valuable because it also shows the readers the process, the transparency, the extent to which we value accurate, accurate information, the way that we care. Um, and again it 's something I think that you know um, a lot of media organizations have really good correction policies i 'm not saying that we 're the only ones that that you know do it well. Um, I actually think that media organizations perhaps don 't do enough to let their readers know about them because again it 's another thing that distinguishes journalism, which aims for a higher standard than just somebody saying what they reckon online or any one of a thousand other people offering an opinion. Um, And the second thing is we do think that experts are qualitatively different. I mean, the whole reason the conversation exists is to build trust between experts and the broader community. But that relationship of trust can't be one of blind acceptance. Um, Experts have to be read and thought about critically, and experts are sometimes wrong. And it's really just a matter of how you deal with it when somebody is critical of or engaging with an expert, whether it is a... Correct a matter that requires a correction or a matter of legitimate debate where it can be dealt with in the comment stream or can be dealt with some other way. Um, but we certainly don't try to create an impression that experts are the final word on everything. Um, but we do obviously try not to make mistakes.
1: Mm. Um, Jane, I'm just wondering as a Bureau Chief at Reuter whether you're uh, sure and confident that you're reporting the right stories. Because this is one of the... Um, attacks, I suppose, on journalism and mainstream journalism in recent years has been we report uh, we, we ignore whole sections of our communities we don 't report on them enough and this is clearly the complaint I suppose that a lot of Trump followers have, which is that the media is the enemy um, they don 't know our lives they 're not telling the stories they 're seeing it from their perspective i 'm just wondering, do you feel um, in a very mainstream or you know news outlet like Reuter? That you're capturing yeah. the right stories.
2: We would hope so. Um, you know, I think generally there's a lot of talk about the media, and I think we all first have to acknowledge that there is no media. <laughs> you know, there, we, we all, you know, us on this stage work for different organisations and different outlets, and. Um, you hear that a lot, the media does this, the media does that, the media doesn't do this, and, and what is actually being talked about is a very disparate group of organisations. Uh, we would, like most other organisations, you know, we, we have news conferences several times a year, we have very definite strategies about what we want to report about, uh, we talk about it very clearly. Uh, obviously, we are—we have media clients who tell us what they want news about as well. And, and as with all other news organizations, I think we'd have to acknowledge, perhaps with the exception of the conversation, that we do have some masters who, who tell us what, what they would want to hear. But as journalists and editors, we do act very independently and and we do say these are the stories that we think are important. And we do try to set that agenda, Mm -hmm. even if they're not necessarily things media clients are telling us about. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's perhaps where, Misha, your comment about the expertise of journalists comes in. I mean, that's what we're trying to do in those conversations that we have uh, in setting the agenda. Um, I actually just wanted to throw back to you, Misha. Can I just... Of course. Thank you. <laughs> Have a debate. Um, when you talk about experts uh, and restoring trust in experts, who decides who the experts are? And and what... You think about experts in, in history where, you know, we, we had medical experts saying that, you know, women suffered from hysteria... <laughs> and could never work in proper jobs because of that. And and you have different experts through time. And who decides who the experts are? Sure.
3: Well, I think um, ultimately uh, the readers do. But I think one of the important things that you can do is you can be transparent about what... Um, qualifies somebody to talk on a particular, particular topic. I mean, one thing that often frustrates me reading newspapers is i read articles and there's a name at the end. I'm like, well, who is this person? Like, Why should I listen to this person? What do they know about this topic? I've learnt absolutely nothing about them. Um, so what we do is, with every article that we publish, we publish the profile of the academic that's written the piece, so what their qualifications are. If we're writing something about vaccines, we'll get an immunologist, we'll have all of their qualifications, all of their publications, where they've taught. They'll fill in a disclosure statement to say if they had any conflicts of interest, if they received any funding that might affect it, and then ultimately we let readers make up their own mind. So I don't think I don't think expertise is about, you know, bestowing something necessarily on somebody, but it is about saying that people within a sphere who has something very particular offer have a value that is different to somebody who is just offering an opinion. Um, And one of our rules, um, which is a very strict rule, is that we really work with academics who are writing in their area of expertise. That's our focus. Because what we're trying to do is not necessarily um, add more voices to the sort of plethora of opinions that are out there, but actually arm people with really valuable information and context and understanding.
1: Good. We will get to questions very shortly. But, um, Cameron, I just wanted to ask you to this point about whether or not you think in the last 30 years of award-winning journalism you've got the um, the right sort of stories. You know, like, have you, have you told the stories? I'm thinking a lot of, like, the debate that's um, thrown up in recent few months, I suppose, around globalisation. So the point is the paper mainstream media in large certainly the australian i suppose has reported that story as a positive you know as a net positive for the world you know globalization open trade and uh, of course the argument now is that for a whole lot of people it wasn't there were losers so the losers were never really reported upon and the and so that in a sense you know, we missed, you know, you could argue that 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 story, that part of the story was never really reported. I'm just wondering what you think about this question of um, how you make sure that as a largely middle-class, I suppose, um, media, we um, tell stories that make sense to the people who've now left us, you know, who've who've, who've deserted us. How do we get them back? Because if Misha is right, we've got to get back the trust We've got to get it back in in all sorts of ways, I suppose.
4: So. You mean as as media? Yeah, mm. um, yeah. God, that's a hard question. Um, I, I think uh, it's interesting with media. Um, people often, uh, traditionally, and it is happening even more now, they, they they consume the media that they agree with. Uh, to a large degree and that's that 's a, a challenge in itself that 's always been the case to an extent. I mean more conservative readers would probably buy the Australian less conservative would buy the age, even less conservative would buy the guardian you know so you have that sort of that situation where people um, uh, purchase what they want to purchase uh, and you have issues in newsrooms I think you always have i think um, the, i mean I think every newsroom has to a degree the age i think certainly um, some years ago, had a situation I think where a lot of the journalists they had were very much um, from the eastern suburbs, or you know, private school educated, and you didn't really get any sort of diversity in understanding within that that, that group. And uh, I think each media organisation has to really work on that, um, absolutely, uh, as they should, because you've got to understand to a degree the people that you're reporting on, and I think it's a it's a major challenge. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, the Australian has, has tried to, to take a lot of steps in that direction. We've got a couple of Arabic speakers now, which, of course, is important with various issues. and uh, and uh, But you can get into a danger, I think, any media organisation of, of just not quite picking a trend if you're not on the ball and you're not mixing with the people that it's affecting Uh you know, and I think you've you've also seen that polarisation. Say with the asylum seeker debate, a classic example, where you have um, certain sections of the media which which um, report uh, asylum seeker um, refugee advocates very very heavily, and you have another side of the media that that, that, that doesn't report them very much at all, and you've got polarised reporting on that topic uh, rather than balanced reporting, and I think that, that's it's a, a danger.
1: I'm wondering whether we are ready to go to some questions. Uh, I think the idea is to try to get a mic and announce who you are. Um, And if you have got some thoughts, otherwise, anyone, any takers for the moment?
5: Hi, I'm Rashmi. Um, In regards to what you guys were saying about trust in journalism, I was wondering what your thoughts were on whistleblowers, firstly, and the second, censorship. Um, Recently, uh, because my background is in women's health and about abortion in particular, there are some news outlets that won't mention that word at all, but it is an issue that was gaining a lot of traction recently. So, um, yes, I'd like to hear your thoughts about, firstly, whistleblowers and whether they increase or decrease trust in media because they're, they're publishing things that we all of a sudden know about that media didn't pick up, I guess, or knew about and didn't want to publish, and secondly, about censorship.
1: So the, que- the first question is really about whether or not whistleblowers—that sort of the notion of the whistleblower—increases in- public trust or not. Um, I might ask Cam to talk about that a little, if if you will, because um, you've had more exclusives than you can I A few name.
4: whistleblowers in my time. <laughs> of time. I, I mean, whistleblowers are massively important. I think. Um, depends what sort of whistleblower they are, though. Uh, I mean, there's. Uh, you know, I mean, I think um, I'm critical myself, unlike lots of journalists, of aspects of WikiLeaks and the Snowden disclosures, because I think that they they were um, whistleblowers who didn't protect sources. Um, they were very careless in the way they did that. And uh, so, you know, but I mean, some uh, ones from coming in from, I don't know, the Department of Education, or maybe in your situation, Department of Health, and maybe whistleblowing on the Bacchus Marsh baby tragedies or something like that, I mean, you know, massively important... Um, I think, and as far as censorship goes, it's a really interesting question because I think social media has raised the issue of censorship in a bad way, in the sense that um, that you know, if you write something, people write something that the, the Twitterati don't like. You know, it, it's people can get really smashed to the degree that they probably you know make them more reluctant. I don't know. I think. Um, um, Chris Yuleman got um, got from the ABC got comprehensively bagged last week when he was suggesting that um, that the renewables issues in South Australia and the and the blackout was a, was a valid thing to debate and he got smashed on social media and you know what I'm not sure that's particularly healthy so um, it's only a half answer but I think social media has changed the game a bit on the censorship side.
1: Can I just ask, are you suggesting? I'm not quite sure what um, to the questioner. Not quite sure um, about the censorship. Are you saying? Um, that, that we should have it or we should have more or less. I'm I'm just not...
5: Um, no, it's just a question about whether you see it as a barrier, really, on what you can report and what you can't report. I remember within my previous work, we wanted to put an ad about abortion services, for example, um, but we couldn't have the word abortion in okay. any of Fairfax media. Where, were, where was that? Which outlet was that? um which newspaper are? Yeah. Um we couldn't put it in I'm pretty sure it was the age wouldn't allow it and a lot of fairfax media outlets wouldn't allow the word abortion mm, and seems some extraordinary didn't like contra- me, but, contraception um, either yeah. yeah so i thought that was interesting in terms of that being censorship they said it was too offensive yeah yeah, yeah. okay was there another question there yeah
6: um so uh Institutional history is a, was um, spoken about in the last quarterly essay by La, uh, Laura Tingle, and what your organisation seem to represent um, are that institutional history in journalism. However, with the changing financial models in me- media, how are you going to uh, preserve the integrity of that institutional history? Because the newsroom's changing, the number of people coming into the newsroom is changing, and... Um, they're being. I would argue that a lot of journalists uh, journalism graduates or people are being are turning to writing opinion as opposed to facts, because that's where the money is.
1: Mm. Well, now I might answer that one first up myself. I think uh, I think there's a lot of um, life left in institutions. I mean, as a at the Australian as a print outlet originally, obviously we. Um, have, uh, you know, the, the, the end of print has been called, the end of that institution has been called often, but I think the Australians probably as strong as it's ever been in terms of the content, in terms of the capacity to continue to, to break stories and to, you know, to continue to um, report on stories, ongoing stories. I think Clive Palmer's a good example of that, um, and there have been many others. The, um, I think... Uh, the, uh, I think, yes, we are part of the institutional, you know, framework and like politics, um, like the church, like uh, so many institutions, like family, I suppose, we're all coming under our various sorts of um, threats, but I, I can't sort of see that the answer lies in turning away from uh, writing um, or reporting to opinion. It's very interesting, actually, that your generation, if I, and I guess you're speaking for more, for, you know, for your cohort to some extent... Um, is uh, is um, turning to opinion, and is it really because? You know, I'm fascinated to hear a little bit more about why why that really is. Is it really be, is it because the facts are too hard to do? Is it because it's because uh, in investigative reporting, for example, is really you know is really difficult, and no one likes you. And oh,
6: I, I don't think it's uh, about likability. I think it's more about what generates views. Like we're a we're a click per view. Model in in the general internet sphere. So it's about what can you draw or what content can you produce that uh, will generate uh, interest. And it seems that broadly speaking, entertainment. Uh, broad, broadly speaking, because you do have uh, you do have people that enjoy the fact based model, but broadly speaking, entertainment and opinion will get more views as opposed to uh, dry facts and investigative reporting.
1: So, um, Jane, you might like to... I mean, I think it's actually getting a little
2: too noisy out there. I mean, I I bet everybody here is pretty tired of clickbait. (laughs) So I don't think think it's all that kind of sexy headline attention-grabbing stuff on one hand and then, as you say, sort of dry facts on the other. I think, you know, good journalism is between those two somewhere, closer to the dry facts, maybe. Uh, But there is still, I think, very much a market for that. I mean, some of our biggest reports in the last year or so have been on the Rohingya Muslims and on uh, China media spreading around the world, and these are things that have won Pulitzers that have been very widely read, and it's very deeply sourced investigative reporting that done well is beautiful to read, you know, frankly. And and also, but but does that mean that we can just write slabs of text? No, you know, we do need to join these markets as well. Uh, Reuters recently signed a deal with Facebook. We now do Facebook Live broadcasts and we've started doing those those in Sydney once a week. Um, it, that presents more challenges for us because Facebook Live is 10 minutes and we have the journalists who, who talk and... As you would all know, talking off the cuff for ten minutes, uh, you may say something that you did not intend to say, or you know, it's it's for journalists who are used to print. Uh, it's a challenge, but it's one that we've decided that we do need to take part in. So I think we're starting to take part in some of these forums in a more considered way, and and presenting an alternative to some of that noise out there. And I, I think we are reaching a point now where where that is being recognised
1: um... sorry yes
4: Cam Just quickly add, I, I think it's um, uh, with all due respect I think it's a big mistake to go down the opinion uh, route I think opinion is there's far too much of it out there it's fairly cheap most of the time uh, it doesn't uh, really in the, in the end what you build up clicks and a bit of a following but then to do what you know I mean like in the in the end I think it's a much wiser um, move early in, to, in your careers to go straight into into good fact-based reporting. And by that, I'm not talking state, old-fashioned stuff. I mean, uh, the, um, at The Australian, we have a reporter called Dan Box, a crime reporter who's done this amazing podcast uh, on Barrowville on these murders 20 years ago of ago three young Aboriginal kids in Barrowville. He's gone back and done real um, shoe-leather journalism old-fashioned journalism, but presented it in this amazing podcast where he interviews literally everyone, including the accused killer. Uh, I mean, look at the, um, the Four Corners pieces on um, juvenile detention. Look at Adele uh, Ferguson's pieces on the Commonwealth Bank and the NAB. I mean, these are fact-based reporting, but they're done really well. They're done in an engaging way, a way that really gets you in. I think it's, journalists just have to be much more um, open-minded, modern and innovative in the way they present Fact-based reporting, but that will go a thousand miles. I mean, you look at the Walkleys this year. You know, all of um, those sort of stories are the ones that are going to win. Uh, you know, there. So really, I think that um, it's uh, it's a mistake to pay too much attention to opinion because, in the end, there are a bunch of cheap hits that go nowhere.
1: I suppose, I suppose your um, point, though, is like, who's going to give me a job, though? So that's for the... Um, for the not you personally, but, I mean, you know, your, your generation. I just wonder, Jane, if you might just pick up a little bit on that, though. Are you finding, with the people who are coming to you as sort of cadets or younger journalists, are you finding that you're having to uh, talk to them about um, the modus you know, operandi of reporting in a different way than you might have had to sort of 20 years ago? on this point, really, of whether anyone actually wants to be a reporter any longer?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think... Yes, I mean, I think there is a difference. We, we have very sort of clear set of guidelines. We have to have two sources on every story that is breaking news, um, which at the level of the newsroom can be very frustrating at times when you think you have an amazing scoop and you really want to get it out and you have editors saying no 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 one you've only got one source you need two but but there there is a reason for that um and and it works very well because it means that we're we're trusted when we do get something out there Uh, we do actually have online information that uh we, sit, we, we share with all new recruits to Reuters, in fact, not, not just younger ones, but everybody must do this ethics uh, reporting module online. And in fact, they discovered a year or so ago that uh, people were skipping parts, so now they actually play a video and you have to wait to the end of the video before you're allowed to click the next page. So you must be very ethical by the time you finish this. But, you know, it it is part of a contract that you sign with us that you must fulfil these and you must repeat it every year. Um, It was interesting, actually. We had a young journalist with us who was with us as a graduate trainee and she was offered two jobs. She was offered one at the ABC and one at BuzzFeed. And it prompted a huge discussion in the office about where she should go. Uh, she was very torn. There were some of the younger reporters saying, "Buzzfeed, it's you know, it's it's new, it's happening. It's they're, they're going to be recruiting people, and ABC's boring. And if you go to the ABC, you'll be sent to the country somewhere for six months, and you know, write about wheat. pig competitions or <laughs> weasel or whatever it might be." And then you had the other side of the newsroom saying, "But you will learn solid reporting at the ABC, though you will learn about fact-checking, and yes, you may write about some more minor things, but you, you know, it, it will be a really good start for your career." So it, it was very interesting sitting in the newsroom and, and hearing that conversation and, and listening to how, how she felt about that. She went for the ABC in the mm. end.
1: Interesting. I'm just wondering, a show of hands, who'd go for the ABC and who'd go for BuzzFeed in this uh, auditorium? No no takers? Anyway. Mm. Oh, well. Go for both, yeah. Um, sorry? Which are we putting our you can? Yes. BuzzFeed? Which one? Buzzfeed? BuzzFeed, sorry. Anyone? BuzzFeed. Anyone for BuzzFeed? No? ABC? ABC. Oh. oh. <laughs> Very good. Right answer. Correct answer. Go to the top of the class. Um, the... Um, uh, Misha, I'm just wondering uh, what you think about this, because um, because of course all of your people basically on the site are I suppose what you call writers rather than reporters. Um, are you seeing, um, and obviously you advocate for, in a sense, more of, of your kind of uh, media. Um, what do you think you'd say to a young person starting out about what skills they should develop if they want to be in the media?
3: Um well, I think the most important skill... I mean, it's it's, it's sort of interesting, like, from um, my newspaper days, you know, the fundamental skill you talk about is sort of that shoe-leather leather journalism, getting out there, talking to people, gathering information. That is fundamentally important, and I don't want to devalue that because I, I think it it's such a good way of learning about journalism. Um, but for me, for the people who I hire, which are editors who work with academics, um, most of, you know, our team of about 25 editors the editors don't tend to write under their bylines, but they're commissioning. For me, it's about being a good reader. It's actually about the skill of being able to develop ideas. I mean, I want somebody to come into a newsroom in the morning and say, I read that version of the story in The Oz, I heard what they said on um, Fran Kelly this morning, I read this bit in The Finn, they did this little bit in The um, Business Insider, and I think that the angle that we should take is this, right, which is all about being across the story, synthesising information, Um, thinking critically and then being able to sort of brief somebody. And they're, to some extent, they're sort of, you know, what you would call sort of high-level critical thinking skills that you develop in journalism over your career. So traditional career path, you might start off, you'll be a reporter for a period of time, you might do courts, you'll do a few different beats. But over time, as you become more senior, you might do something like become an op-ed editor where you're curating a lot of different content on a range of topics. And the sort of thing that people in our team do is sort of more along that line. Um... But just on the question of, of opinion, I mean, fundamentally, um, we have a have a policy which is that every author for the conversation is, you know, free to express their opinion and encouraged to do so, because we think that's a useful form of transparency. That if you're an expert in um, vaccines and you've studied it for 20 years and you've got an opinion on the best way Australia should approach its policy of funding vaccines, for example, um, you know why would you not express that opinion if it's based on your expertise and your knowledge? I think that the reader, A, has a right to know where you're coming from and, B, they can evaluate whether they agree with that opinion or not. But we're not fundamentally interested in the opinions. The opinions are, for me, editorially secondary. What I'm interested in when I'm commissioning an article is something that can give me new information, new insight, explain something I didn't already know. Apart from perhaps those aspects of um, writing where the opinion sort of is the work. Like say you're getting a, a theatre critic to write about a particular movement in the theatre and they might be expressing in a view on it, where the two are so sort of intertwined. But generally speaking, I would agree with what people in the audience were saying, you know, and, and what you were saying, which is that the volume of opinion is confusing and generally unhelpful. Um, and the way I assess an opinion article is really not whether I agree or disagree with the author, it's whether when I get to the end of the piece I know things I didn't know when I started.
1: I wondering if there are any more questions at all. Oh, yes, plenty. So wherever are over here maybe, first of all. Thanks. In the slide.
5: Hi. Uh, my name's Miriam. I'm a reporter with Crikey. I wanted to ask you guys about um, the Drudge Report in America. It seems to me like we've had a few elections where you've had uh, it and other really hyper-partisan outlets that aren't really journalistic, I guess, in how they approach things become very influential in setting the agenda. It seems to me that in Australia we do have political partisans, but if they're left-wing they'll quote The Guardian, and if they're right-wing they'll quote The Australian, which suggests that they're still engaging with the mainstream media. So I guess my question to the panel is, do you think that there's a market gap in Australia for something like a Drudge Report, or do you think that Australians still trust the mainstream media enough that things aren't as bad here? Mm, right.
4: Okay, Cam, you go first on that. <laughs> okay, gosh. It's um, a good question, actually. I, I really, uh, Miriam, I'm not not sure. I guess you've got, um, you've got GetUp. You've got a few sort of organisations that... that um, uh, quite a few organisations in Australia now, especially on a Sunday when it's a quiet media cycle, will try and push through various stories and, and increase influence to that degree. But, uh, gee, a judge report, I'm not sure about that. But uh, You never know, but it's an, it's an interesting concept. Anyone else?
3: Um, I think it's a question of scale in the Australian market. I'm just not quite sure whether you could get sufficient scale to make it commercially viable. I think that, you know, the reason that it works in the US is because you've got such a, a different size of audience. There might be a gap. I mean, who knows? I'm not an expert in these things. But I think you might struggle to to get something sort of viable with a large enough following. Jane? Uh, no, I'm Definitely
2: staying not. out of this one. Yes. I'm not my expertise.
1: Definitely not. Um, and another, there's another question along the same line. The mic's coming there.
0: Uh, hi, my name's Johannes. Um, a couple of the previous question uh, questions alluded to it, but with the dry up in advertising revenue as traditional media organisations have to find new ways of filling that gap, uh, are we in danger, especially with things like the Age publishing, the China news lift out that they're doing, that that's going to further erode trusts in traditional media?
1: Well, I think, I think I mean, I'm happy to answer that in part. I mean, clearly um, newspapers um, are under a great deal of pressure at times, like all media outlets about trying to uh, raise revenue. And um, there are increasingly uh, different sorts of... Um, endeavours, I suppose, different sorts of ventures that newspapers are doing, partnerships. We, you know, we partner with people to produce conferences, for example. We partner with people to produce uh, panel discussions. Uh, we've got very strict rules at The Australian about the editorial independence of the content for those um, uh, um, ventures. And uh, there's always been clearly marked uh, material around advertorial, uh, and that's always been clearly marked in papers. I think that there is, um, yeah, I, I don't disagree with the notion that I think that um, a public who sees something which doesn't seem to be independent uh, in that sense is, is actually going to lose, um, uh, going to become increasingly sceptical, I suppose. But I think there are ways of managing it and there have to be. There have to be ways, I think, for us to manage a new business model. And the business model is partly around digital. But it's really not. We're not going to be saved, in a sense, financially, probably by a digital advertising base, because the you know the the base is um, the amount of money you can make from that is is pretty low. I think advertising is actually coming back in some areas in print. The Australians are um, actually in a good space, um, and that's partly about the fact that we've got a very defined niche. I think if you if you can define a, if you can develop a a um, print product that is clearly uh, appealing to a particular demographic, a particular sort of um, reader, and a particular readership. And then you can go out and sell that uh, to advertisers. Advertisers will still pay for that. But it is a hard complicated uh, exercise compared with 40 years ago when the ads fell out of the sky basically and landed somewhere on the on the on the print floor um, so yes I think I think there are um, questions that we every day I think in um, a newspaper you ask yourself about uh, any um, uh, about about requests that come to you I suppose from commercial operators about being connected to you either through a conference or you know sort of special panel discussions and things like that. Other people on that question of money?
3: Yeah, well, it's a tough one because, you know, the advertising revenue for online is is so poor. Um, I take a slightly different view of um, what we call native advertising. Um, There's a great John Oliver segment on it where he sort of talks about um, native advertising and basically he argues that um, it's fundamentally designed to camouflage what it's doing um, and therefore it is fundamentally corrosive to journalism. And I think that's sort of true. Um, It's interesting, The Guardian's got, like, a four-point scale where it identifies different levels of content. There's sponsored content and native advertising and different arrangements. Some some are where the advertiser pays for the content, but there's editorial independence. Some are where they get a particular thing. But the whole reality, the whole point of it, the whole reason it exists is because you're putting that content in a journalistic content where some of the gloss of journalism and the trust that people give to journalism, whatever's left of that... um, Rubs off on the content, that's the whole value. So you're selling off your value as you go, absolutely. I can't see any way it can ever work, and I think it's corrosive to journalism. The
1: issue for you, though, um, I suppose, is, um, and the issue for the Guardians, interesting, isn't it? There is the Guardians, which has a trust which has run out of money, basically, um, and they are finding, they're having to find new ways of funding their operations. So um, th- there, there are clear um, imperatives about keeping a news um, industry afloat, in my view, about keeping 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 newspapers and uh, outlets viable so that you can do the sort of reporting uh, that's so important. So, yeah, I'm interested to know, what do you think of Jane about the commercial I guess, issues? Yeah, I guess we're in a slightly
2: uh, different boat here. You know, we have two sets of clients. So we have media clients who are... Most of the large media organisations in the world and then on the other side we have our terminal clients who buy our news and information terminals for which we compete with Bloomberg Uh, and I guess you'd probably argue that a fair amount of our revenue has come from the latter side uh, in more recent years Uh, and they can have sort of two different sets of demands, the latter is much more about getting data and, and getting it quickly. Uh, but I think, uh, in a way, it's our journalism that we do... ..is almost like a lost leader <laughs> within within the company, that it, 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 it helps sell those terminals. Uh, I think it still has a lot of value.
5: Mm.
1: Cameron, have you got any thoughts on this issue of uh, how far, um, you know... You know, to Misha's point, I suppose, where he's, he argues that any um, any sort of sponsored content, any partnerships, is corrosive of um, true journalism.
4: Uh, look, I mean, in theory, I I, I agree, but uh, you know, in practice, maybe there's going to be some sort of maybe there's got to be some sort of middle way down the track where you can somehow get some assistance on that front without jeopardising your independence. Now, you know, that's a, a tricky area. But um, I don't think it's impossible to do, but there has to be a lot of discussion about how you do it because, um, of course, the moment you get even a perception of that, then you get shot down in flames, and, and rightly so.
3: I think the the problem with that is that if the whole reason that, that advertisers want to do it is because it's not an ad, right? I mean, if they wanted to buy an ad, they'd buy an ad. So the whole reason that they're doing it is they want to dress it up as editorial. But it's not. It's advertising. Like, it invariably is because they're paying for it. So to me, it's... A deliberate attempt by an advertiser, always, invariably, to blur the boundary for their benefit, and I I can't see any way, no matter what rules you put in. I mean, you know, we have a lot of earnest discussions in newsrooms about how we can put this rule or that rule, or do this disclosure or that. But I think it's always, it's always covering over, papering over a fundamental compromise, which is basically what you're trying to do is present. Um, advertising content is to, in a way that looks like editorial. That's what you're doing.
1: If but if it is, and it, and it is, and it should be labelled as advertorial or sponsored content, that does alert the reader to see it in a different way.
3: But the only reason that that's that's appealing... Is because it looks like something that it's not. Because obviously the disclosure is never sufficient, and it's always in a very small font font size and up at the top of the page. And I mean, it's it's about a deception. And you can go, oh well, yes, we've declared. But I mean, the whole point of it is the deception. Because if if there was no deception, you wouldn't want to do it that way. You just buy an ad,
2: which is your trust issue.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I just think it's. I mean, look, I can understand why. Like, I'm not I'm not critical of anybody for doing these deals because, you know, we're all trying to raise money in an incredibly difficult marketplace. But I just think if you're going to look at it in a really clear-eyed way, there is fundamentally, in my view, no way that you can actually make it work because the whole value proposition for the advertiser is the element of misleading the reader into thinking it's an editorial product.
1: Um, another question from the floor? Oh, here at the, oh, there's one at the back here and then to the front, yeah.
7: Uh, my name's David. I'm a second-year journalism student across the road. Um I just wanted to know. Misha raised the point early on about how there's a becoming less and less trust in in experts, um, and we have to rebuild that trust. I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on how practically we can go about rebuilding that trust.
1: Yes, um, I'm happy to go first on that. I think I think it is a very I think it's very complex because I don't think it is simply about um, presenting factual journalism. Um, the problem with the with the reduction of trust in us is it's a reduction of trust in everybody it's a, i think it 's a societal wide phenomenon in the last sort of twenty or thirty years um, about you know the, the lack of trust in the church the lack of trust in the notion of a god the lack of trust in the notion of politics you know it's sort of it 's quite a profound shift and to simply think that we can change um, change that and bring back trust if to the extent that it's eroded uh, by keeping on doing the same things that we're doing, I think it's really quite complex. I'm not saying... I don't know what the alternative is. And I think the, the first step is to sort of keep on doing doing a good job in those areas around, um, around good uh, fact-based, you know, reporting, good analysis, as, as Cameron was saying, you know, good context as well. But it's not going to come flooding back. And I think it's what you know. What we're seeing in the states sort of alerts us to that in a way, because even if Trump doesn't win, all of the things that he's talked about and all of the shift that he's affected already in in politics, I think is just not going to disappear overnight. So we're in for a period of time when I think when the trust in the political um, class is going to be hard to restore, and they and we're all in a sense. Um, you know, it's a trickle-down effect, I suppose, to some extent, on all of us. Having said that, I think that you can, you do have great numbers of very rusted-on, you know, loyal readers. You know, every paper, every outlet has got those people, and we have a lot of them. And the reason why we've got them is that we have basically stood for the same uh, ideas and the same sort of approach to journalism for more than 50 years. And that's, you know, that's we've got a legacy. We've got a profound legacy that is about Telling a you know about a narrative about Australia and really reporting on reporting on uh, Australian the, uh, Australian life and, and the world and its impact on Australia and that I don't think that's to be um, uh, minimized you know.
4: Can I just um, add there? I think the Trump thing is really interesting. I mean, he's basically gone out. I've never seen a presidential candidate do this and, and call the American media corrupt. You know, that's the and uh, and he's literally pointing to them uh, in the in these. Um, town hall seminars and people are now turning up behind them and holding up signs, in you know, corrupt media, corrupt media. Uh, and it's really interesting, um, Helen, what how will that play out? I mean, let's assume Trump loses, but what sort of damage does that do um to that still fairly large rump of his supporters um, in the Republican Party? I mean what, what damage does it do? I think it's a a fascinating area and it's a it's an area of great concern because you actually have a mainstream candidate actually saying that. I mean in Australia you have um you know, each leader will criticise the media to a degree, but you really don't get anything like that sort of vitriol. So I'd be fascinated to see how that, that plays out.
2: Can I just skate back to you know the, the issue of trust and, and talking more of uh, trust uh, in uh, journalists maybe than, than experts? Misha might talk about that. But I think um, Cameron touched on this before, and I think a really important point and, and one that I'm very passionate about is diversity, And I think it's it's a very practical thing, but I think diversity in newsrooms will help create trust. I mean, if you look at Reuters, it wasn't that long ago that you would take a photo of a Reuters newsroom and it was a bunch of middle-aged white men. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you went to a foreign outpost, it was like our man in Havana, you know, the guy in the white linen suit and, and the trilby who had been flown in and would write about this place that he had arrived in two months ago and send these great dispatches back. Um, I'm actually quite proud to say that Reuters has, has, has done very well on the diversity front, and, and it does actively recruit uh not just women which is a, a big one uh but also reporters from the country they are reporting from uh we now have a bureau chief in jakarta who is indonesian uh, our chief uh, editor for asia is a woman and and a south korean and 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 frankly speaking honestly 20 years ago that that would have been unheard of. It probably would have been an American or an Englishman. (laughs) Um, and, And I think that makes a big difference because that makes a conversation in the newsroom, both at a country level and at a regional level, quite different because you have this diversity of people and backgrounds bringing these different ideas. And it touches on what you said before, Helen, are we reporting the right stories? That helps us ensure that we are, that we are speaking to the people, that we want to be speaking to. And and we are not just presenting a reflection of middle-aged white male <laughs> America or England. And, you know, perhaps there's a correlation with that in the national media as well. I mean, I would argue that there has been. So I, think, I just think diversity is actually very important.
3: Um, OK, I'll, I'll be quite quick on that one. I think with rebuilding trust it's as simple as Behaving in a trustworthy manner over a period of time and demonstrating it, um, and there's a whole bunch of things that you can do. Um, one of the things that you can do is you can be open to your audiences. You can answer questions. Um, you can um, put people up for discussions. You can do things like we're doing today. You can you can talk to groups of people. You can be transparent. Um, it's about. I think trust can't be built, rebuilt with an assertion, you know, I'm trustworthy, trust me, you have to demonstrate it over time. And it takes a long time and it's very difficult. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the point we were discussing before about um, trust in the media in the US, for example, and the damage Trump's done, um, I think that damage is very real. I mean, I read you that Rush Limbaugh quote where he said, you can't trust the New York Times, they're just players like everybody else. I think that's a, that's a prevailing attitude right now. Um, And so anybody that wants to step out of that and say, we're not a player, we are here to serve the public and we're trying to do something that's fundamentally different, has got a very long road ahead of them.
1: Indeed, there's another question just down here, if we tap the mic. If you're still in the market for asking.
7: (laughs) Hi everyone, I'm James from the South Coast Times. Just, I suppose, tapping into the question about the various levels of noise out there and the sheer number of news outlets, if you like, and media outlets there are now. Um, I guess a lot of that can be attributed to the fact there are a lot less journalists now than there used to be. I mean, there's no-one from Fairfax on stage, but I imagine if there were, they would talk about how Fairfax has been gutted um, in recent years. Um, Was that a mistake overall? I mean, I'm not talking about Fairfax specifically, but just the media in general in ceding the ground to all of these other outlets, or, or did the media generally have no choice in terms of cutting back on the number of journalists it had to cover stories and thus... Control the terms of the news, if you like. Well, I'll comment
1: on that later. But Misha, would you want to go first on that? I mean, I think the question really is: Did we, if we had more people on the ground in mainstream media, yes. we would have won the war. Sort of thing. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. I don't think it was a choice. No one had a choice. I mean, every media outlet all over the world, is traditional media outlet, particularly newspapers, but also big TV newsrooms as well, um, radio have been bleeding money and resources ever since the rise of the internet. Nobody's had a choice. It wasn't a choice. Nobody was like, oh, we want to lose a whole bunch of journalists.
1: No. As a managing editor of The Australian, I think that's correct. <laughs> but, um, and I, I suppose what's interesting is I, I, I think the second question really is whether or not that's um, one cause or the other, because I, I actually um, feel as if it's nothing to do with that, actually. I mean, it is to do with technology. It is to do with... Um, a whole, you know, generations of couple of generations now, perhaps almost of people who now absolutely know that they can be creators of news and not just consumers and everything's shifted. So, you know, you could have a very heavily staffed um, you know New York Times and or whatever and uh, still be in the same position I think. But I don't know whether other people have a view on that or what do you think?
4: No, no I think it's just um I blame it on Al Gore who says he invented the internet. That's pretty much it. I think, I, think, I think it's just technological change. I think that's really just absolutely changed the game like electricity in the 18th century or, you know, the printing press.
2: Well, it's not just other outlets, is it? It's individuals. Anyone can be a, a citizen mm. journalist.
7: But yeah. that's half the problem, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so
2: I, I think um, your, your traditional media, e- even if we had stayed at the strength we were at 15, 20 years ago, the The sheer numbers of of people online i, I don 't think that would have prevented that happening, and I think it 's partly our job now to, as we said before, cut through that noise and I, A practical example is uh if, if there 's an earthquake or something in vanuatu you'll off, you 'll quickly start to see videos and and incident reports you know flooding online on Twitter and whatever. And then as, as you go through those, we have a team dedicated to trawling through those to try and actually get content. You will find that nine out of ten of those are, are totally fake. You know, they, yeah. they were an earthquake in a different country ten years ago and what have you. Um, so for us, who, who we then sell on that footage to our major international clients, it's very much we, we are one of the few outlets who, who can do that.
4: And, and, and I think that's a really good point that Jane makes. I think, I think you get better, and, uh, I'm, you guys, I'm sure, will get very good at this, uh, quickly, is, is to sort the wheat from the chaff to a degree. I mean, there's a lot of noise out there, but when you look at the origins of those various reports, you've seen, you very quickly learn which ones, are, are reliable, um, sources, which ones aren't. It's not a perfect science, but it's, it's a science that you get to learn quite quickly, and I certainly hope the general public can, some of this stuff too but uh, once you just look at the media and consume a lot of it you really do start to learn which ones you can rely on and which ones you can't it's not such a blur out there if you really you know pay attention to it
1: there's another question just here do you want to put your hand up so we can get the mic to you um um, just a thought there and i've lost it now but anyway sorry
7: (laughs) yes Um, please so my name's max i'm a third year journalism student across the road as well. With all the talk of the online noise, um, recently with a lot of, you know, obviously with the internet exploding and people having opinions on the internet, um, that has, from what I've seen on social media, that's had a very big impact on pushing people towards different outlets. And, for example, looking at the Australian's Facebook page, that has been like a congregation of Australian Trump supporters, which has been really interesting. And then looking at places like the Philippines, where an organization called Rappler which I interned with and have followed a bit um, they've you know been really attacked over their coverage of the new president Duterte, who's done some you know abhorrent things and they've reported them as you would have you know the last 10 15 years and they've been absolutely hammered for it and changed their editorial sort of opinion to be a bit softer on him do we think that's a likelihood of being a problem in the future where audiences can set the way outlets look at certain issues or certain Politicians, and you know, where's the line between, you know, listening to what your audience wants and then providing that in order to make money, and then also taking a back step and saying, you know, you're wrong.
1: Well, uh, it's interesting isn't it because I suppose um, newspaper editors have always thought that they were producing material for their audience that they knew what their audience wanted, but they really know now, don't they? In a sense, with the, with digital feedback and with the with, the, to your point. Um, so, I, but I, I would sort of say that what has to happen and what what must happen is that um, is that a news outlet or a, an editor or whoever's making those decisions just has to really hold to their last. Really, I suppose, and sort of they the the notion of being swayed in that way by sort of in a sense media. Um, Or you know, like um, effectively, a version of trolling, I suppose, is uh, is uh, abhorrent. Obviously, if you're trying to do an independent job, your point's interesting, though. Is what you're saying is that you get you get you can identify the people who're reading your own outlet and what they want, and and to what degree do you give them what the what they want, and to what degree do you um, stand and sort of deliver, I suppose, on your own. Uh, view of the world. And I think it's always, I think it's, it is more intense, but it's always been an issue for for um, editors and for journalists, really, is how much is it about what we um, we believe to be our view of the world and what we believe needs, for, for argument's sake, if you're, if you have an editorial stance about what needs to happen around free trade, for example, are you going to be deterred from that idea? Because... 50% of your readers don't believe in free trade. You know, I would argue that no, one shouldn't be, but um, at, at an editorial level. Um, but I think that it's it's a challenge, yeah, and I guess would be an increasing challenge. I don't know what other people think of that.
4: You, you've got to, you've got to be um, a bit careful there in in probably working out what your readers think too, because I think it's it's not a perfect. Science at all. I mean, you wouldn't want to go on the, based on the comments, for example, underneath certain stories. I did a, a magazine story on the, um, uh, on the issue of the mosque in Bendigo, um, not that long ago, and it was about just talking about how that, that movement had grown up in Bendigo, who were the initiators of it, et cetera, et cetera. And I was saying that it was all funded, um, in lots of ways by, uh, by sort of anti-immigrant movements around the country who, who'd funded it quietly. Um, so it was a sort of national movement in this one town. Anyway, um, the was published, and I think we had like about 500 comments um, the next day, and about 490 of them were incredibly hostile to um, the story and to uh, to the notion of having a mosque in Bendigo. Now, clearly, that was not reflective of our readership. It was a, it was an organised response, if you like, by those groups. Um, so you sort of it's tricky sometimes to even exactly know what the majority and mainstream um aspect of your readers think about some issues.
1: Well, maybe time for one more question, and then otherwise we will probably wrap up.
3: They're getting tricky that's a hard yeah
1: one. <laughs> yeah, wrap up now, I think yes. um okay, well, we might call it down. I'm just wondering whether anyone do you, um Misha, any cl- concluding thoughts about the um this issue of uh, fact and how we can continue to you know. Report the facts.
3: Um, no, I guess the only thing I've got is, um, as I was saying before, like a slow process of trying to rebuild trust in experts and expertise, people who really know what they're talking about and who can engage with and help audiences understand issues. And I, I do extend that to include journalists and journalism. And I think um, that's a very specific and important expert function. And I think it's been devalued in a whole range of ways. You know, if you think about the Trump support as being one example, but There are a whole range of ways in which um, people sort of are dismissive of the process of journalism, the idea of being an information worker or an information honest broker. Um, And I really would like to see the case made for the importance of that in sort of any society and democracy. I think it's fundamentally important.
1: Mm. Jane?
2: I, I would agree that regaining trust is important. Luckily for us we have our trust principles that we're still sticking <laughs> by uh, so and as I said at the start, I think those are actually still very, very valid today and and we we should and do follow those because I do think there is room in this uh, vast sea of noise for an authoritative, accurate uh, reporting of events we also do provide uh opinion but it's very specifically flagged as opinion we have a breaking views column so we have experts in their field and that isn't just uh somebody reporting about writing about something because they like it again it is it's very specifically experts um and and i do think there is significant value in us doing that and we should continue to do that we may have to as Cameron said find new ways of telling those stories you know we we probably can't just keep sending out wire stories one of our main goals this year is becoming more and more multimedia so while the format may change I I think the core of providing that unbiased and and truthful reporting is still needed
1: Cameron,
4: final uh, yeah, definitely. Um, definitely important to keep fighting the good fight because, uh, really, in the end, uh, it's what's important. And uh, and I believe, you know, as the exchange said, it just you, you can absolutely be innovative in the way that you do it that catches people's attention. and facts, do not equal boredom, and that seems to be a misinterpretation. I think um, good journalism, good uh, journalist outlets, good media outlets, make it interesting. And so that's that's the challenge. But in the end. That's the main part of the game because that's what changes things, in my opinion. Trumps will come and go, but good journalism will stay.
1: Mm. Lovely. Um, my concluding thought really is this question of experts versus journalists because um, probably about 40 years ago when I started, the idea of the journalists being... An, the journalists weren't supposed to be experts. You know, They were supposed to be the conduit and the cipher and... Um, to some extent, and the notion that you were an expert on anything was actually almost contrary to your objectivity about something. So I find it's quite fascinating now that actually, um, you know, that, that sort of wheel has turned so completely and so in such an interesting and, and complex way because it used to be the case that your lack of expertise in a subject and your general capacity to listen and hear and report was uh, what the skill that was needed. So on that thought, um, I think I would just say thank you all very much for coming. Thank you to the people who um, made this happen. Um, and... Uh, um, we'll um, conclude now. Thank you.
0: And just a final thank you to our panel, and thank you all for coming along and asking some fantastic questions and taking it up to the panel, which I think they did admirably um, in their defence. Thank you very much.